0: We should begin. First of all, uh, a warm welcome to you all. Thank you very much for coming. It's a great pleasure for me to be able to introduce Professor Heidi Johansenberg this afternoon. Uh, she had the title of uh, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience conferred upon her by the university some, I think, we think, think it's about two years ago. Uh, but despite the time lag, the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences was very keen to recognize and celebrate this important event by holding her inaugural lecture today. Heidi's rapid trajectory in the field of neuroplasticity and brain imaging was assured from her early days when she obtained a first class uh, BA in experimental psychology in Oxford and was top of her year. A distinction in her MSc in neuroscience followed and she then completed a DPhil in 2002 on the reorganisation and modulation of the human sensory motor system supervised by Paul Matthews and Vincent Walsh. She was then awarded a Wellcome Trust Career Development Fellowship, followed by a Senior Research Fellowship, to pursue her research in neuroplasticity. In Frimbrough, she now heads the Disease and Plasticity Group, studying motor reorganisation associated with learning and recovery, following brain damage after stroke. Her research has produced many innovative and exciting observations, which have resulted in Heidi being recognised as an international leader in the field. In addition, her research in neuroplasticity led her, along with Kia Nobre and Emily Holmes, to develop a research programme in cognitive health and ageing for the Oxford Biomedical Research Centre, funded by a £2.5 million grant from the National Institute for Health Research. Her natural abilities as a leader were recognised very early on, and in 2010, not only was she given a Young Investigator Award by the leading international society in her field, the International Organization for Human Brain Mapping, but she was also elected its president. I'm sure this must be uh, a unique phenomenon to have occurred. Another aspect of her international recognition was her appointment in 2011 as a visiting professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Oslo. And of course, she is much sought after uh, keynote speaker at many international meetings. In 2007, for example, she was invited to give one of the highly prestigious presidential lectures at the Society for uh, Neuroscience in the States. In addition to her research, Heidi is an active and enthusiastic teacher, not only of undergraduate and postgraduate students, but also in relation to advancing public understanding of science. She has regularly given talks to schools and uh, adult audiences, as well as discussed her work on the radio and television. Through much of her time in Oxford, she's been a much-valued fellow at St Edmunds Hall. So, without further ado, it gives me the greatest pleasure to ask Heidi to give her inaugural lecture this afternoon entitled Imaging and Simulating Human Brain Plasticity.
1: So, thank you, Chris, for that very uh, generous introduction, and thanks to all of you for coming along today. So at these types of events, sometimes people talk about the things that inspired them at an early age to embark upon a career of scientific inquiry. Um, When I was a child, I was actually rather turned off by science and did everything I could to avoid it, preferring to spend my time drawing pictures and reading books. And in fact, spent a lot of time um, poring over the pictures in this particular book, which some of you might remember from your own childhood, so People by Peter Spire, which is a celebration of all of the marvelous differences between the things that make us different talks about things like how uh, we all eat different food, live in different houses, have different hobbies, play different games and choose to spend our lives doing different things such that some of us excel at things that others could never do. And in a sense, I could consider that as being an early influence because now I spend my time researching how the activities that we engage in and the experiences that we have uh, shape the structure and function of our brains and make us all different. And we can just refer to that phenomenon as brain plasticity. So my group over at Fimrib, the plasticity group, are interested in the way in which the human brain is shaped by experience or learning in many different contexts, both in health and disease. And this afternoon, I want to give you a sort of greatest hits of the, some of the work that we've done in this area over the past 15 years or so here in Oxford. So to begin with, let's consider how the brain might change as we learn a new skill. The idea that the brain might change as we learn new things is not a new one, it's been around for a long time. And this is a quote from the famous Spanish neuroanatomist Ramón y Cajal, who wrote that the acquisition of new abilities requires many years of physical and mental practice. In order to fully understand this complicated phenomenon, it's necessary to admit, in addition to the strengthening of pre-established organic pathways, the establishment of new ones through ramification and progressive growth of dendritic arborizations and nervous terminals. So basically what he's saying now is that when we learn new things, That learning is laid down as physical changes in the structure of our brains, and in particular, a strengthening of the connections between brain cells. It's remarkable that he was able to have this insight back then because at the time there wasn't any way of visualizing these dynamic processes in living, behaving brains. Whereas now these types of phenomena can be visualized directly using microscopic techniques. So, for example, uh, in this paper published a few years ago, researchers used a technique called two-photon microscopy which allows them to visualise individual dendritic spines, so or the sites of individual synaptic connections, and see how those change as a result of learning. So in this task, animals, rats learn to reach for a food pellet, and as they learn that task, the uh, researchers can visualise differences in their brains at a a very, very microscopic level. So here you see these tiny little processes, which are individual dendritic spines, and they're able to detect growth of new spines as a result of that learning. And indeed, across a group of animals learning this task, they find that the better the animals are at learning the task, the more they learn, the more of those new connections are formed. So this is really a, a visualisation of exactly those processes that Kal was talking about, the fact that as we learn new skills, our brains grow new connections. These can be visualised at this microstructure scale, but what about if we're interested in plasticity occurring in, human, in living human brains where we have to rely on more indirect measures of structure and function such as imaging, like magnetic resonance imaging. Even this relatively crude technique can potentially be used to detect experience-dependent changes in brain structure. And perhaps the most famous example of that is this work done by Ele- Eleanor McGuire and colleagues in London who were able to show that um, if you just scan with conventional MRI, taxi drivers and uh, the rest of us, you can show that the hippocampus... Uh, the posterior part of the hippocampus is larger in taxi drivers compared to the rest of us. And that's a particularly compelling observation because we know that this brain area of the hippocampus is particularly involved in spatial navigation. And so this suggests that maybe years of experience of navigating around the streets of London have grown this structure in these people's brains. One thing that my group have been interested in is whether these types of phenomena might occur not just in the grey matter of the brain where the cell bodies are, but also in the white matter, the connecting pathways of the brain. And we have methods with MRI that allow us to study these connecting pathways. Um, And we might expect that the physical properties of the white matter would uh, would be one way in which we could influence behaviour because we know that the physical properties of the white matter, things like the quality of the membrane or the thickness of the myelin sheath around the axon, could influence the physiology of those white matter pathways, affecting things like the speed or quality of signal transmission. And the variations in those physiological properties of white matter bundles might then have consequences for behaviour. An MRI offers us techniques with which we can assess the physical properties of white matter, in particular diffusion MRI, which is an MRI technique in which we are sensitive to water diffusion. That's a useful thing to measure because we know that water diffuses more easily along the axis of a fibre bundle than it does across the axis of a fibre bundle. And this directional dependence of diffusion is, uh, or so-called diffusion anisotropy, it turns out is sensitive to some of these relevant structural properties of the white matter. So we can estimate this measure for every point, for every voxel in our brain scan, and then use that as a probe for the structural properties of the white matter. So this provides us with a local measure of these types of structural characteristics to allow us to test the hypothesis that differences in white matter structure can have consequences for behaviour. And indeed, we've used this technique across a number of different Behavioral domains to test the possibility that variations in brain might matter relate to variations in skill. So, as one very simple example, we asked um, students to perform a bimanual coordination task in which they have to coordinate movements across the two hands. So, for each subject, we can come up with a score, score which quantifies how good they are at performing that task. Then take um, brain scans, come up with these maps of anisotropy, and ask whether there are any areas in the white matter where variations in the uh, structural connectivity of those fibres predict variations in behaviour. And when we ask that question, we specifically pick out this red cluster here, which is in the body of the corpus callosum, the white matter fibre bundle, linking the two hemispheres of the brain, and it's specifically in the part of that fibre bundle that links um, motor areas across the two hemispheres. So what this suggests then is that even in a young healthy population, individual differences in brain wiring predict variations in behaviour. And importantly, uh, those differences are spatially localised. So it's specifically tasks which are involved in the ta- uh, specifically tracts which are involved in the task being probed that show this type of relationship. So if we look across a number of different types of tasks, as we've done, uh, we can show that behavioural variations in memory or learning tasks can be predicted by structural variations in precisely those pathways that we think are involved in performing those tasks. So our brains are wired up differently and those differences in brain wiring to some extent explain differences in behaviour. So those relationships are interesting, but how should we interpret them? What are they caused by? Is it the case that some of us are born with a particularly well-connected corpus callosum and that means we're going to be good at a manual coordination task? Or is it the case that some people spend their lives engaged in tasks which require them to coordinate their two hands, and that that experience has then shaped their behavior and has also shaped their brain structure? Similarly with those taxi drivers, is it the case that driving around the streets of London has grown the hippocampus, or are some people born with a large hippocampus and choose to exploit that special skill by becoming a taxi driver? So we've got this classic sort of chicken and egg problem. We can't infer causality from a simple correlation. So to try and make a causal interpretation, we have to perform a longitudinal study where we take naive subjects, train them to do something, and then test the effects that that has on their brains. And the first study to do that in humans is shown here, it's work from Dragansky and colleagues. They took naive individuals, trained them to juggle over a three month period and compared brain scans acquired before and after that training experience, and were able to show that that learning was associated with bilateral changes in the visual motion areas of the brain, the region shown in yellow here, suggesting that in a healthy adult brain, learning a new skill is associated with structural changes in regions that are relevant for the task. So here we have a task which requires subjects to process moving visual information, and we see physical growth in the areas of the brain involved in processing visual motion. built on this work by testing whether such changes could be found not only in the grey matter as shown here, but also whether these changes would be apparent in the white matter, in the connecting pathways of the brain. So using a similar type of design to the one in the original study, we scanned people not only with um, conventional MRI, but also with diffusion MRI. And this is a study that was done by Jan Schultz when he was a PhD student in the lab, and you can see him here demonstrating his own juggling skills. And what he found was that um, This new experience did lead to changes in grey matter, which here are indicated by the red clusters that you see in the brain scan. And what we found was that this learning experience altered the structure of areas in the medial, occipital and parietal cortices, which are known to be involved in reaching and grasping for objects in the periphery of visual space. But importantly, in addition to those grey matter changes, we also detected changes in the underlying white matter pathways, shown by the blue clusters in the brain image, showing for the first time that the white matter pathways of the adult human brain are susceptible to experience dependent changes in structure. So this is an exciting observation and it shows us how neuroimaging can be powerful in showing us where and when things are changing in the context of a learning intervention. However, unfortunately, Neuroimaging measures alone cannot tell us what it is that's changing, they can't tell us what it is at a cellular level that's driving those neuroimaging changes, and that's because there's not a one-to-one relationship between any of our neuroimaging measures and the underlying um, biological mechanisms. So in this figure, for example, if you consider the left-hand side of this figure, if we detect a change in the grey matter of the brain, there's many different potential underlying drivers for that change. It could reflect growth of um, new neurons, it could reflect synaptogenesis, growth of new connections, it could even reflect changes in glial cells or vasculature. Similarly, if you consider the right-hand side of the figure, when we detect a change in white matter structure in response to learning, that could reflect many different underlying drivers. It could reflect change in the organisation of the fibre pathways or change in the myelin sheath around the fibres. And using neuroimaging measures alone, it's not possible for us to disambiguate between these different possibilities. And it's important that we understand what the underlying biological drivers of these changes are because by understanding those changes, we might be able to enhance them, for example, through drug or other-based interventions. So one of the new areas of investigation in my lab over the last few years has been to try and complement our human studies with parallel studies in animals in which we can perform not only the imaging measures but also cellular level investigations to see what's driving the changes that we see on our brain scans. So I'm going to tell you about some work done by Cassandra Sampaio-Baptista who completed her PhD um, supervised by myself and David Bannerman um, last year. And Cassandra spent a lot of time during her PhD training rats to perform this unimanual reaching task. So training them to uh, reach with one paw for a food pellet through their cage. And this is quite a difficult thing for them to do. You can see the behavioral data on the right that shows that it takes them maybe a week or two to learn that skill um, up to a plateau. So it's a new thing for them to learn. After they've experienced that new learning, we can then scan their brains to see whether that learning has changed their brain structure in any way. In particular, to see whether it's changed the, the white matter, the wiring of their brains. So when we do that, if we compare diffusion MRI scans in the trained group compared to control groups, we find evidence for increased diffusion anisotropy in this red area here, which is specifically underlying the falling sensory motor cortex in the trained hemisphere. So we're just training up one side of the body here. And you can see we have increased anisotropy in the trained group relative to the control group. So this, if you like, is a similar result to the one that we saw in the juggling humans. When you learn a new skill, that has the effect of increasing um, this measure of anisotropy in task-relevant white matter pathways. But then the point of doing this experiment here in rodents is we can then follow that up um, with histological measurements, with measurements at a microstructural level, which allow us to see what's driving those changes at a cellular level. So in this experiment, Cassandra was able to do immunohistochemistry, staining for myelin basic protein, a marker of myelin, the insulating sheath around the axons and by performing those measurements, she was able to show that this learning experience was also associated with more myelin in the trained group relative to the control groups. And indeed that within that group of trained animals, the better the animals had learned the task, the more myelin was present in this brain region. So this shows us then, that when we detect these experience-dependent changes in white matter structure using imaging, at least some of those changes might be explained by activity-dependent increases in myelin. And increasingly, from the cell biology literature, there's very recent evidence suggesting signaling pathways by which electrical activity along an axon can influence the myelination of those axons, so a a mechanism for activity-dependent myelination. And this provides evidence for those types of phenomena in, in behaving organisms. Okay, so we've talked a bit about how learning a new skill might shape your brain. I'm now going to go on to talk a bit about how alterations in our body might change our brain organisation. So it's very well established that different parts of our body are represented um, in ordered, organised maps in our brain. Um, We've been interested in the group in testing how changes in the body can change those maps, both over a long-term such as in the case of limb amputation, but also over much shorter term manipulations that we can induce experimentally in in healthy subjects. So to begin with, I'm going to talk about some of those short-term experiments, and these are studies that have been carried out by James Kolosinski, a current PhD student in the lab, and James has been exploiting the opportunities offered by our seven-tesla magnet over at the Fimrup Centre. So teslas are the units of magnetic field strength that we use to categorise our MRI scanners. Most clinical scanners have a field strength of 1.5 tesla. Most research scanners are 3 tesla. We have only one of two um, seven Tesla magnets in the UK. And the reason we get excited about that is because increasing the strength of the magnet buys us a big increase in signal to noise. And we can trade that for signal to noise for improved spatial resolution. So we can get better detailed images off our uh, MRI scanner by using this um, machine. So James has been exploiting that increased spatial resolution to resolve maps of individual digits in the human brain. So it's very well established from animal work that individual fingers are represented um, in organised maps in the brain. These have been detected previously in humans, but typically using very long scan times. Here you can see the results of just 10 minutes of data acquisition in the 7T scanner, where James has asked subjects to um, tap the fingers of their hand in a repeating sequence. And you can see here an inflated brain and then zoomed up, along the central sulcus where the sensory motor cortex would be located. And you can see that the activity relating to those finger movements is moving up the central sulcus in a topographic manner, so moving from the index finger at the bottom up to the little finger at the top. So he can then use these data to define these individual finger maps in individual subjects and to show that these are very highly reproducible over time within a a single subject. So these maps are quite impressive in in themselves that we can visualise that level of detail um, in individual subjects. But the reason why we were particularly excited to have this available to us is that we can then go on to test whether we can change these maps as a result of some type of manipulation and how quickly can we change them and how much can we change them. So the type of manipulation that we chose to use was basically gluing two of the fingers of the hand together. So James found a very um, safe surgical glue, which is easy to remove um, after a 12-hour period. So he's brought subjects in, scanned them on four different occasions, separated in time, and between each pair of scans, there was a 24-hour period where the subjects were either left to their own devices, or they had the index and middle finger glued together with this surgical glue. So then what we can do is test whether the maps that we see immediately after that 24 hours of gluing differ from the maps that we see on the other occasions. So in particular, we would expect that if you have two of your fingers glued together for 24 hours, and that will be a dramatic change in the sensory motor experience of your fingers. Does that translate into a change in these maps? And the way in which James has characterised those changes is by first of all defining a profile through those digit maps and then um, mapping out the profile of activity related to each of the four digits here. In. So it's basically like taking a slice through those activation clusters so that he can then quantify the degree of overlap between different pairs of digits. So we can then test whether the, represent, whether the maps are getting closer together or further apart as a result of experience, whether there's more overlap or less overlap as a result of that new experience. And the results of this experiment are shown here. So what you can see Um, is that for the control scans, there's no difference in the amount of overlap between different digit representations. Whereas for the scan taken immediately after this 24 hours of gluing, there's a significant difference in the amount of overlap between the digits. And that specifically, there's less overlap between digits three and four, and more overlap between digits four and five. So this is um, very exciting and rather surprising. It suggests that this very short-term manipulation changes, doesn't actually dramatically change the maps of the digits that you've glued together, but instead what's changing is the digits that have been left free and the digits that are presumably compensating for that gluing manipulation. So what we think then is that the fourth and fifth finger are having to gain new motor synergies. They're having to work closely together and therefore their representations are getting closer and they're having to work less with the glued fingers, whose representations are therefore moving further apart. So this is really quite striking. There have been (coughs) studies previously in animals that have looked over much, much longer term manipulations at how these maps can change, but this is the first time we've been able to see this type of change over such brief time periods. So this provides us with a model then for looking at remapping the brain in a short period of time in an experimental setting, but we've also been interested to see how longer term, more naturalistic changes can impact on these maps in individuals' brains. And the model that we've used for this is upper limb amputation, and I'm going to tell you about work that's been done predominantly by Tamar Macon, a postdoctoral fellow who's based jointly between my lab and Irene Tracy's pain group, and has done this work in collaboration with David Henderson Slater and others um, at the Oxford Centre for Enablement. So amputation has long been a popular model for studying brain plasticity, but the vast majority of work in this area has focused, has considered amputation as being a model for sensory deprivation. So it's focused on the fact that when you remove a limb, your brain is then deprived of the normal input from that limb. And because we know that the somatosensory cortex is organised according to these uh, maps of the body, when you remove the hand, for example, we know that that will remove the sensory input from the hand to the cortex, and therefore work is focused on the neighbouring cortical representations, such as the face, invading that deprived cortex. However, this model of um, sensory deprivation, this focus on sensory deprivation, fails to take into consideration the fact that people who only have one limb will behave very differently to those of us who have two limbs. So there'll be a very dramatic adaptive compensation associated to living with amputation. And that how people differ in terms of their adaptive compensation has been overlooked so far in the literature. And you can see some examples of this adaptive compensation in these videos of a couple of subjects from some of um, Tamar's recent experiments who've been asked to open a water bottle. And you can see different strategies that they employed to carry out this everyday task. So, for example, this gentleman uh, stabilizes the bottle with his residual arm, with his stump, and then opens the top, whereas this gentleman uses his mouth to remove the top of the bottle, which he then twists with his intact hand and doesn't involve his residual arm at all. So those are just two examples of many, many different other examples of strategies that these individuals have employed to perform this everyday task. And these differences in how people are behaving have not to date been considered in terms of explaining how the maps and their brains differ. So in one study that... Uh, I recently completed with us, she aimed to first of all just characterise differences in adaptive limb use between different groups of amputees, in particular to ask the question do people rely more on their residual arm or stump or do they rely more on the intact hand and she considered this in two groups of amputees, people who had late acquired amputation, so people who were born with two hands but then lost um, one hand later in life versus congenital amputees, so people who were born without a hand. And she she characterised their patterns of limb usage using objective accelerometry, so activity monitors attached to the arms, as well as using questionnaire-based measures. And what she found was these interesting dissociations that are illustrated here, which basically show us that acquired amputees tend to overuse their intact hand, whereas individuals with congenital limb absence tend to overuse their residual arm. And this makes intuitive sense. It suggests that if you are used to using two hands but then you lose one hand as a result of amputation, you'll rely more heavily on your intact hand and you won't become so adept at using your stomach. Whereas if you're born with only one hand, um, then you perhaps become more adept at using the residual arm for everyday tasks and less reliant on an intact hand. So these are um, intuitively fit with our intuitions of what might happen, although interestingly had never previously been described systematically in the literature. So these patterns of limb use in themselves were of interest but we were particularly interested to then go on to test whether these patterns of limb use could explain the maps in these individuals' brains. And in particular, to consider that missing hand cortex, so the cortex that would normally be representing the amputated hand that had been deprived of its inputs from the hand, to what extent is it now representing these other body parts which are compensating for the limb loss? And what we found was, interestingly, that that missing hand cortex represents the overused limb, whatever limb that is. So I'll just take some time to talk you through this because it's um, rather complicated. So in the middle of this figure, you can see um, activities. So these are for fMRI experiments where subjects have been put in a scanner and asked to move different body parts. And in the middle image here, they've been asked to move the residual arm or stump. And we're looking to identify activity that's greater in the congenital amputees who overuse the residual arm versus the other groups. So, and, you can, and the area that's been zoomed in on here is the area including the deprived cortex or the missing hand cortex. So what you see is that in these individuals who overuse their residual arm, that arm is now represented in the deprived cortex. Whereas interestingly, if you look at the right-hand side of this image, this is now the same comparison for subjects moving their intact hand, which importantly is on the other side of the body. What you see is that in the acquired amputees who are overusing the intact hand, that intact hand is now represented in the deprived cortex, despite the fact that the deprived cortex is ipsilateral to the intact hand. So what this shows us altogether then is that the deprived cortex, the missing hand cortex, represents whichever body part the individuals are overusing to compensate for their limb loss, whether that's an arm or a hand, and whether that's on the same side of the body or the opposite side of the body. So there's really dramatic reorganisation, and it also shows that the change in the um, sensory maps after amputation are not just due to this um, passive invasion or spillover of neighbouring cortical representations into the deprived cortex, but also depend very much on how these individuals are behaving, how they're compensating for their limb loss. So another interesting feature of limb amputation is a phenomenon called phantom limb. So this is something that's very common after a late acquired amputation. When a limb is amputated, people are left with this very persistent sense that the limb is still present. They have what's called a phantom limb. They can feel the limb and they can move the limb. So this is an interesting phenomenon. It's also a clinically very important phenomenon because for many people, this limb is excruciatingly painful and this type of pain is very difficult to treat. Again, there's been a lot of work done on this phenomenon of phantom pain, uh, but again, it's very much focused on this idea of invasion of other body parts, such as the lip and the face, into the deprived cortex. And the idea has been that this invasion of other body parts somehow gives rise to aberrant brain signals, which are then interpreted as pain. Again, Tamar Macon has taken a fresh approach to considering this problem. And rather than just looking at the representations of these cortical neighbours, she's looked instead at the representation of the phantom limb itself. So put people in the fMRI scanner and asked them to move their phantom limb. Now, importantly, asking them to move the phantom is not the same as asking them to imagine to move the phantom. The signals that you get both in the brain and and in the periphery are different when you instruct them to move or to imagine to move. So they're actually moving this phantom limb. And what we found remarkably was that the activity in the brain when they're moving the phantom limb is indistinguishable from me moving my hand. So there's a very preserved representation of this phantom limb in the cortex. And in fact, the more pain they had, the more preserved was that representation of the phantom. So this is quite a different way of thinking about phantom limb. The phantom limb is a powerful sensory experience which then preserves cortical representation of that limb. And the more pain you have, the more preserved is the cortical representation. However, that's not to say that the people with the worst pain have the most normal-looking brain activity. Because if we Um, instead of considering activity within the deprived cortex if we go on to consider how that brain area is communicating with the rest of the sensory motor system we see quite a different pattern so if we look now at the functional connectivity the coherence in activity between the motor cortices and the two sides of the brain what we find is that there's a disconnection between those two brain areas in people with um, phantom limb and that the worse their pain the more disconnected those brain areas are so, together, what this suggests is that pain is associated with a preserved activity within the missing hand cortex, but greater disconnection between that brain area and the rest of the motor system. So, this prompts us to rethink how we should consider remapping that occurs after phantom limb, that occurs after limb amputation. It also has some implications for how we might treat, think about treating this particular disorder. I'm going to tell you about some very recent work done um, where some of the students have tried to test whether brain stimulation could potentially be used to alleviate phantom pain. So here we've used a type of non-invasive brain stimulation here being modeled by Charlie Stagg and Claire Orman, who many of you will know. It's a technique called transcranial direct current stimulation or tdcs. It's a very low tech technique. We place two rubber electrodes against the scalp and then pass a small current between them, typically in the order of 1 to 2 milliamps. And we know that if the anode or electrode is placed over the motor cortex, so the current is going in at the motor cortex, this will have the effect of increasing the excitability of that part of the brain. So we might therefore predict that by stimulating the deprived cortex in this way, while behaviour is ongoing, we might reintegrate the deprived cortex into the rest of the motor network. So Sane Kikert, a um, PhD student in the lab, together with uh, Melvin Medsuri, and Irene's group, have been testing whether this type of brain stimulation could potentially be used to alleviate phantom pain. So they're stimulating the deprived cortex, they're asking subjects to move their phantom hand, and it's well known that asking them to move often exacerbates the pain, and indeed that's what they find. So if they, um, they're stimulating the brain either with real stimulation or with placebo, sham control stimulation. Importantly, neither the participants nor the experimenters know which condition is being tested, so it's blind, it's double blind. And what you can see is that in this placebo control condition where no stimulation is actually being received, moving the hand exacerbates pain. However, when we deliver real stimulation, that exacerbation of pain is abolished. So we're alleviating phantom pain through this type of brain stimulation. And interestingly, when Sunny has looked at the fMRI activity associated with those movement conditions, what she sees is that this type of brain stimulation increases the degree to which the deprived cortex co-activates with the rest of the motor network during movements, suggesting that indeed this stimulation has reintegrated the deprived cortex into the rest of the motor network. Okay, so we've talked about how learning or how changes in um, body maps might change the brain. Um, I'm now going to change tack a bit and talk about, talk about how changes in our lifestyle might change our brains, and in particular, to focus on physical activity, physical exercise. So most of us, probably in this room, know we should do more exercise. So the government recommends that as adults, we should be engaged in 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week. And very uh, few of us achieve this, and we get worse and worse at achieving this as we get older. So this is data from the chief medical officer's report from a few years ago, showing the proportion of adults of different age groups who engage in any type of regular physical activity. And you can see that this drops off steadily through the lifespan so that in the over 75s only about 10% 10 of people are engaging in regular physical activity. So this is an important uh, public health issue because we we all know that exercise is good for us. We know it's good for our heart, we know it's good for our weight, but it's increasingly clear also that it's good for our brains. So in my group in the last few years we've been interested in testing... Uh, the effects on the brain of taking inactive people and then forcing them to exercise for a period of time and testing to see whether that has beneficial effect on their brain or on their cognitive abilities. So I'll tell you first of all about a study that's been completed, which was carried out by Adam Thomas, who just completed his PhD with me. And Adam, working with Andrea Dennis and Nancy Rawlings in the lab, recruited sedentary, young to middle-aged subjects. So many of them were students, for example who weren't doing much um, exercise at all, forced them to go to the gym five days a week for six weeks, scanned their brains before and after that experience and tested to see whether their brains had changed. And they focused in particular on the brain region shown in green here, which is the anterior part of the hippocampus. So there's a lot of literature out there on the effects of of exercise on the brain, most of which focuses on the hippocampus, and there's increasing evidence from human imaging studies that it's the anterior portion of the hippocampus that's particularly responsive to the effects of exercise. So, they measured the volume of this structure on different time points relative to this exercise intervention. And what they find is that taking up exercise, even for just six weeks, increases the volume of that structure, as you can see from this graph here of um, volume change relative to baseline. So, it significantly increases the volume of the structure. You'll also note from the graph that when they subsequently to stop exercising for a per- further period of six weeks, the um, the volume of that brain structure reverts back to baseline. So, uh, disappointingly, we have to continue doing this if we want to continue to see the benefits on our brains. In this study, which was of young to middle-aged people, we don't yet have any evidence that this exercise intervention has had any measurable effect on these people's cognitive abilities so it's significantly changed their brain structure but we don't have any evidence with the tests that we've used that it's had any effect on their cognition these are all high functioning um, mainly young people however there's increasing evidence that in older populations where there might be the beginnings of the onset of cognitive decline that physical activity can potentially um, improve cognition or at least slow the rate of cognitive decline so we have in progress Uh, Studies that fall within this Cognitive Health and Ageing programme that Chris mentioned, which is a large NIHR-funded programme which aims to test whether non-pharmacological interventions can be used to delay cognitive decline and potentially delay the onset of dementia in, um, in older adults. So in my group, Claire Sexton and Jill Betts and Andrea Dennis are testing the effects of physical activity on brain structure and function and there's a parallel program of work being carried out in the psychology, in the psychiatry department, led by Kia Noble and Emily Holmes, testing whether cognitive stimulation um, can also have beneficial effects um, on cognition and, and brain in later life. Okay, so we've talked about how different manipulations can change the structure and function of um, health of intact brains. For the last part of my talk, I'm going to. Um, discuss another clinical focus of my group which has been on um, stroke and in particular on recovery of motor function after stroke so stroke is the leading cause of disability in the UK and there are currently over 300,000 people living living with moderate to severe disability as a result of stroke imaging can show us how the brain recovers after stroke and we would argue that this information can potentially be useful in helping to guide design of, n- of new treatments and interventions so this has been a research focus of mine for some time. So when I did my PhD here with Paul Matthews and Vincent Walsh, the focus of that work was very much on using fMRI, which was a relatively new technique at the time, to monitor how the brain changes um, after stroke. And one of the things that we observed, which has now been observed many times, is that if you take a um, person who has had a unilateral stroke and are, who, which has affected their motor function, put them in the fMRI scanner and ask them to move their hands, affected by the stroke, you tend to see this bilateral pattern of activity. So whereas in healthy people moving one hand, brain activity will be lateralized to the opposite side of the brain, in a stroke patient moving an affected hand, you see this bilateral pattern of brain activity. So in other words, the hemisphere ipsilateral to the hand being moved, the hemisphere on the same side as the hand being moved, becomes involved in this task after stroke. So in the stroke patients, this would be the healthy hemisphere, the non-stroke hemisphere that's been recruited to perform this simple movement task. So this has led to the idea that perhaps the non-stroke hemisphere can take over or can compensate uh, for some of the damaged functions. However, with imaging, we can just see correlations between the brain activity state and a task. We can't tell whether or not that activity is actually functionally relevant for the task being performed. So to test that possibility, we went in and interfered temporarily with this activity using another type of brain stimulation, TMS, to temporarily disrupt processing in that area of the brain. And what we found was that that temporary disruption was associated with a temporary worsening of the patient's movements, providing the first proof that that activity in the non-stroke hemisphere really was relevant to recovery in those patients who, who required it. And we also did a series of um, longitudinal fMRI studies in which we were able to show that if we took chronic stroke patients and enrolled them in an intensive rehabilitation program, then we could see that um, efficacy of that program was associated with increased recruitment of other distributed parts of the motor system. So that particular figure is an example from a study in which we tested chronic stroke patients with a constraint-induced movement therapy, so where we restrain the good arm and force them to use the bad arm as much as possible what we found was that intervention over a two week period led to significant improvements in their motor abilities, and that the degree of improvement related to the degree to which we were able to increase recruitment of this particular brain area, the premotor cortex. So, together, what these studies show is that with brain imaging, we can um, visualize and monitor the changes that take place um, after stroke, and in particular, we can track how rehabilitation and training might influence those changes. And what's associated with good outcomes versus what's associated with poorer outcomes. So then what we'd argue is that potentially we can use that knowledge, exploit that knowledge in trying to design um, novel intervention programs. So one type of intervention that we've been particularly interested in is the use of um, non-invasive brain stimulation to enhance plasticity. So the same technique that I told you about previously, transcranial direct current stimulation or TDCS where just to recap, we passed a small current 1 to 2 milliamps, between the two electrodes, we know that if we place the anodal electrode over the motor cortex, this has the effect of increasing the excitability of that brain area. And Charlie Stagg, who's here modeling the TDCS kit, um, carried out her PhD in the lab and subsequently a postdoc, has recently taken up an independent fellowship at the MEG Center here in Oxford. Um, Charlie, over many years, has carried out a series of very elegant studies showing how this type of brain stimulation alters local brain activity and brain chemistry in such a way that we might expect it to enhance and facilitate plasticity. So Charlie has shown, for example, that this type of brain stimulation reduces local GABA, so uh, produces local disinhibition, which is known to facilitate plasticity, increases functional activity of the stimulated brain area, and speeds motor learning in healthy subjects. We've also shown in chronic stroke patients that this type of stimulation, when applied over the stroke-affected hemisphere, can temporarily improve movement quality and that those improvements are associated with increased functional recruitment of the stimulated area. So altogether, these data would lead us to predict that um, if we take a rehabilitation intervention, which we consider to be a type of learning intervention, a type of training intervention, we would expect that rehabilitation relies on processes of brain plasticity. If we deliver this rehabilitation intervention while stimulating the brain in this way, then potentially we'll boost the normal processes of brain plasticity and thereby increase the efficacy of the intervention. So that's something that we've tested recently in a um, double-blind randomized control trial of the effects of pairing brain stimulation with motor training over a two-week period in chronic stroke. So this was a study that was carried out by Claire Orman and Igwechi Amadi um, when they were graduate students in the lab. And you can see Igwechi in these pictures uh, holding the um, TDCS kit. You can see one of our participants with the electrodes attached performing the different um, exercises that are associated with this motor training task. So patients are randomized to either receive um, Placebo control stimulation or to receive real anodal stimulation, and importantly, again, both the patients and the experimenters are blind to which type of stimulation is being received. So, the results of the clinical outcomes um, on this trial are shown here. So, this is the score change in the score of the Wolf motor function test, the standardized clinical measure of upper limb function. And you can see that um, from baseline, which is the first point, to day 10, which is immediately post therapy. Both the anodal and the placebo group show significant improvements. So this is encouraging in itself. It shows that intensive motor training, even in patients who are years after stroke, can significantly improve um, clinical scores. But then what was particularly interesting to us was then the deviation between the blue line and the green line. So in the stimulation group, those improvements are bigger and longer lasting compared to the placebo control group. So this provides evidence that this type of stimulation can indeed be used to boost the effects of a um, rehabilitation intervention. We can also look at the um, brain imaging measures that were acquired at different time points in this trial, which show that um, the real stimulation group showed greater increases in brain structure and greater functional recruitment of the stimulated motor cortex after therapy. So these brain maps show you areas... on the left, whose grey matter increases more in the stimulation group compared to the control group over time, and on the right, areas whose functional involvement in the um, hand movement task increases significantly more in the stimulation group over time. So this supports the idea that this type of adjunctive therapy is effective by increasing the recruitment of the stimulated motor cortex. And we're now going on um, through our collaborators to test these types of interventions in other um, symptom domains after stroke. And we're also interested more generally in ways in which we might exploit what we know about the neuroscience of plasticity to design adjunct therapies, So things that we can add on to standard neurorehabilitation approaches to try and boost their effects by enhancing plasticity. So one kind of fun example that we're playing with at the moment is the idea of neurofeedback. So neurofeedback refers to the idea that we could record somebody's brain activity and feed it back to them in sort of semi-real time and see if they can, if we can train them to control that brain activity through feedback. So this is a schematic to show you the setup of a um, fMRI neurofeedback experiment where we'd have somebody lying in a scanner, we'd um, record their brain activity, process that on a computer, and then feed it back to them through a visual display. And their task might be to maximise the value that's being represented to them on that visual display. In the context of stroke rehabilitation, you'll remember that I told you that in patients we tend to see this bi-hemispheric, this bilateral pattern of activity when patients move their affected hand, compared to a much more lateralised pattern of activity in healthy control subjects. We know that this bilateral pattern of activity is most common in poorly recovered patients, and we know that if we can force the brain to be more lateralized, then potentially we can improve outcomes in patients. So one way of forcing the brain to be more lateralised might be to apply um, brain stimulation. Another way of forcing the brain to be more lateralised might be through this type of neurofeedback. So for example, we can read out the brain signals, calculate a laterality index, which quantifies how lateralised that activity is, feed that back to the subjects, and see if we can train them to force their brain activity to be more lateralised. And Heather Niedley, who's a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, has completed some studies in healthy subjects, both young and old healthy subjects, showing that if we do feedback a signal which represents the laterality of brain activity, then um, participants can learn to change their brain activity during movement to make it more naturalized. We're now about to start a study in which we'll test this same setup in chronic stroke patients to see whether they too can control their brain activity in that way, and in patients, the important question would be whether those online changes in brain laterality then translate into, into improved movements outside of the scanner. Now obviously, fMRI is an expensive and difficult to access technique, so we wouldn't be proposing that this should be an add-on to standard physiotherapy um, interventions. So we're also trialing more low-tech versions. So this is me modeling a um, mobile EEG cap, which was de- developed by our collaborators in Germany. And Ying Huang, a PhD student in the lab, is testing whether um, this type of technology could also be used in a similar, but much more low-cost, effective uh, and portable way to achieve the same kind of end result. So I hope that I've given you a flavour of the type of work that we've done over the last 15 years or so, showing how both learning and experience can shape the structure of the human brain and how, by understanding better um, how the brain changes in these contexts, we can um, design new interventions to improve um, human health. So I have a lot of people I'd like to thank, particularly my group, the Plasticity Group at FIMRIB. I'm very lucky to work with a very enthusiastic and talented uh, group of young people. And also to thank my collaborators and colleagues, both at FIMRIB and um, further afield across the university. And thank you all again for your attention.